0: This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. I want to know, would you be ready to go fight for Australia if you got the call up? What do you think about conscription, compulsory military service? We've had this concept before in Australia. Could it happen again? We're getting into conscription in a bit because there's a lot of talk about it at the moment, especially with some countries reinstating it as they face war. So do you think this is a good idea? We've actually been hitting the streets. You've told us some of your opinions, what you think. We've also got a defence expert on who has his own idea, another plan that he thinks might work. So we're going to get into that. First, though, some big news out today. Hack.
1: There are people that loathe the man. There are people who worship the man. But I tell you what, just about everyone agrees this has gone
2: on too long. Ultimately, the US and the UK need to be able to justify their
0: own processes. Even if Mr Assange were guilty of a crime, which I'm not sure is true, and there were due punishment, hasn't he already served that punishment? On Triple J. Next week, a big court in the UK is going to look at whether or not Julian Assange can appeal his extradition to the United States. You might know Julian Assange is an Australian wanted in the US for espionage. He started WikiLeaks, a website that published top secret information about US-led wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now Julian Assange has spent years behind bars, and before that, years in an embassy in London and he potentially faces up to 175 years in jail. And so his family and human rights activists have been desperately appealing to world leaders to help stop him being sent to the US. Well, now there's been a development from our politicians. Australian MPs, including the prime minister, have voted in favour of a motion calling for the return of Julian Assange to Australia. And it's the strongest position from the Australian government on this case yet. So just what kind of an impact will it have? Well, Julian Assange's brother Gabriel Shipton is one of those leading the fight to get Julian home. And he's with us now to talk. G'day, Gabriel. Thanks for coming on Hack. Yeah, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. What's your response to this push by Australian politicians to push for your brother to come home? Is this what you'd been hoping would happen?
3: Yeah, I think this is the next step in the campaign, you know, within parliament to to bring Julian back to Australia to have him released, you know, after five years. Uh, in a maximum security prison, it's it's really time for this to to come to an end. and and that's what um, the Parliament is saying now with this with this motion that has passed. And really, I think what it does is it gives the government, Prime Minister, some real leverage when they're doing their diplomatic negotiations to get Julian out of prison. They can now say we have the Australian electorate on our side because, you know, poll after poll has said, uh, you know, up to 90% of Australians want Julian brought home. And we have the support uh, of the parliament, or two-thirds of the parliament. You've got the support of every cabinet minister who have put their names to the to this statement. Pretty strong statement, you know, it, it makes clear that Julian is being detained related to the publication of US war crimes. It also makes clear that, that they believe Julian is a journalist. The government really needs to like uh, capture this moment And really ram home, particularly with the President Joe Biden, you know, if they haven't done before, ask directly, do us a favour here, you know, send us our guy back because that's what the people want and that's what the parliament wants.
0: I mean, I imagine there's all kinds of conversations, representations being made. Are you able to say whether you know that politicians in the United States are talking about this, hearing the arguments and, and considering it?
3: Well, I mean, all I have to go on is the, is the prime minister's statements. I mean, I, I've met with the Department of Justice in the US. I was over there um, last October with the cross party delegation of Aussie pollies. And, you know, they were pretty adamant that they were going to push forward with this case. You know, they, that, that they wanted to push forward and prosecute Julian, uh, you know, to the full extent of, of their laws. Um, so really I haven't had any indication at, at that level that they're listening at the congressional level, at the Senate level. Uh, The support for Julian in the United States is growing. It it keeps on growing and it's uh, 16, I think, a bipartisan letter had 16 Congress people on it and that was to President Biden. And now we have a resolution before the Congress uh, that has eight co-sponsors and I'll be going straight to D.C. after these hearings on the 19th and 20th of February to continue lobbying and advocating for Julian there and hoping to get to 20 co-sponsors on that bill before it um, has a vote in the in the congress so there is a lot of support among the congress because people understand what it means like this is a threat to the first amendment it's a threat to americans rights as
0: well as the human rights of an australian citizen how is julian going your brother i mean uh, we spoke with his wife stella assange last year and she said that he was in a pretty bad state uh, what's his condition like now
3: yeah look he's i mean he's in a very delicate position Help, you know situation health-wise. I haven't seen him since uh, October last year, um, but I do speak to Stella and my dad. His health has been in gradual decline. Uh, You know, he's been detained uh, one way or another for the last 13 years uh, in the United Kingdom. He went You know, he was, I think, 40 when he went into detainment and now he's 53. So that takes its toll on someone. It is grinding him down. I mean, when I saw him, you get the sense that putting on a brave face for when you go and visit him. And it's just so heartbreaking, you know, to see him locked up there when all he's done is tell the truth. They always say, you know, what keeps him going on the inside is knowing that there are people out there fighting for him. So... I'm sure this is going to give
0: uh, a bit of wind in his sails uh, for for the upcoming hearing. How much do you think your brother's freedom rests on the result of the U.S. election? Do you think that's going to have an impact? Are you thinking about the election this year and and what kind of impact that could have?
4: You know,
3: whenever there's a change in government or a new a new government, there's always a little bit of hope uh, around the place. I remember when Biden came into power you know we were all very hopeful that you know he would revert to the obama position uh which is you know we couldn't prosecute julian without prosecuting the new york times as well because you know this is a trump era prosecution but that didn't happen you know biden was inaugurated and a couple months later the justice department said you know we're going to continue going after julian but we tend to work in a bipartisan way and we do that because this is a bipartisan issue that affects everybody it's not a left or right issue. And uh, it really doesn't matter which president's in power because what's at stake remains the same. That puts us in good stead uh, if it's another Biden administration or uh, someone else's Democratic uh, administration or a Trump administration.
0: And just finally, Gabriel, how confident are you that your brother's going to come back to Australia, that he's going to be allowed to return, that this is going to come to a close soon? Yeah, look, um, uh, I think, you
3: know, we... I sort of, it's, we sort of talk about faith, you know, we have faith that the more and more people we talk to, the more work we do, the more advocating that happens, the more and more politicians that come onto our side, um, that Julian edges closer and closer to to freedom. I don't know what, what it's going to take. The Pope has, you know, met Stella last year. You've got every single Latin American leader calling for Julian's freedom, the Australian Prime Minister advocating for Julian, you know, with the Biden administration. Yeah, we, we don't know what it's going to take, but, um,
0: you know, we're getting closer and closer. Well, we do appreciate you making the time to speak with us. Thank you very much, Gabriel Shipton, for coming on to Hack. Cheers. Thank you. Hack. Being drafted into the military was not on my 2024 bingo card. On Triple J. How would you feel about being drafted? Not to a sporting team for millions of dollars to the military, potentially to fight for the country. And you don't have an option. The government says you're young, you're able, you've got to go. This is called conscription and it happens in some countries. And in Australia, we've had experience with this kind of thing in the past too. And with more and more conflict around the world, some experts are saying, maybe it's time we start thinking about it again. In a bit, we're gonna unpack this idea with someone who knows a lot about military service, defence, global security. But first, our Tassie reporter, April McLennan, has been asking what you think of the idea.
4: There's a call tonight for the UK to train a citizen's army to fight a war on land in the future, and it comes from the head of the army. General Sir Patrick Sanders made his comments while highlighting the threat from Russia.
2: It's been a big story in the UK a top British military official raising the possibility of mandatory military service if NATO went to war with Russia. And it's got a lot of people talking on TikTok.
0: I've just woke up and apparently we're getting drafted in the UK for the army i need to let everybody know in charge of drafting right now don't look this way i'm not trying to make excuses for myself here but i get really bad heartburn my anxiety makes me get bloated i will not be able to run i'll get stitch
2: are they okay they want to send me little girl, naked eat a bowl of yogurt to the front line we might be going to war we might be getting drafted shut up i'm going to war for richie B.A., give your head a wobble. I've got things to do. I've not finished all the series of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills yet. I don't do well under pressure. I di- I cried during my geography GCSE. I am not the one. And also, wrong generation they've picked. How I do my bays for a long day at war. That's all you're going to get. Now, don't stress, people in the UK aren't actually being sent off to war. The British government's come out to say it has no plans to introduce conscription. But it got me thinking about the situation back home in Australia. Like, how would you feel if the government tried to force you to fight in a war?
3: I don't know how I feel about that because my family is not even originally from here. I'm only the first generation born in this country. So I feel like it's not my duty to fight for this country, even though I was born here. It
0: would be exciting to help my country, but I think personally that there are better ways to do that than war.
4: I don't think I could handle a war at all. I would try to find a way to leave the country, like, immediately.
2: Seriously, though, I think I would definitely have extreme bowel movements as a reaction to that. But I think, realistically, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna start sweating, I have to move country.
1: But obviously, my alter ego is like, I reckon we can do this, guys, let's go.
2: (laughs) Now, for some, conscription might seem like a super out-there hypothetical idea. But during World War I, the Australian government actually tried to introduce it, holding two separate public votes that both failed. And during the Second World War, Aussies were conscripted to fight overseas. Then, of course, there was conscription by lottery during the Vietnam War. 2 three, oh. 230, August
3: 17, February 17
2: meaning that 20-year-old men whose birthdays fell on selected dates had to join the armed services. That conscription scheme has since been abolished. But conscription and military service is still happening in many countries around the world. Like in Ukraine under martial law, men aged 18 to 60 aren't allowed to leave the country and they're expected to fight in the war. But Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University, Alexey Moravioff says he opposes the concept of conscription and thinks the war in Ukraine shows why it doesn't work.
4: When you pick up a person in the street, in the shopping mall, in the gym, or any other place, and you drag them by their feet, by their hands, and tell them you will, you will fight and die for your country, whether you like it or not. It's not going to be any good for for the person's morale. It's not going to increase fighting efficiency of your of your force.
2: So, what would happen if Australia did go to war?
4: We need to recognize we're no longer living in the happy reality when war seemed to be the pin of the past. So, we obviously finding ourselves in, in a different reality and, and we need to not hide our head in the sand and pretend that doesn't concern me, it's somebody else's business. No, if war will come our way, it will become, whether we like it or not, everyone's business.
2: While Alexei thinks our soldiers do a great job, He reckons the Australian Defence Force is too small to protect our country. And it's actually had a pretty steady decline in its members. In 1983, there were over 62,000 full-time ADF members. And last year, this fell to around 57,000, according to data from the Parliamentary Library. So if we needed to, how would we bolster our ranks? And once they're in, how do we get them to stay? Well, Alexei thinks national service should become semi-mandatory and we should provide people with incentives to join.
4: One of the propositions that's been thrown around that those young Australians who want to join the ranks may be given fee waivers at universities if they want to do tertiary education. And I think that's an excellent idea. I think we can look at offering an opportunity for those uh, aspiring future Australians who want to migrate here and give them a chance to become a true blue Aussie by, by committing some years to do national service, and as a result, they can be streamlined into acquiring citizenship.
2: With the world feeling so unstable at the moment, Alexi says we need to be ready to defend Australia in the future.
4: Unless we don't give a damn about our sovereignty, our way of life, our security, because Napoleon said once, if you're not going to feed your own army, you're going to feed somebody else's army.
0: Hack. On Triple J. April McLennan with that story. We did get in touch with the Department of Defence. They told us Defence has seen reductions in the ADF separation rate over the past 12 months, and it has retention initiatives to encourage personnel to stay serving longer. Defence has also said improved recruiting and retention outcomes for the ADF are occurring. Right, is it working? We've got strong opinions on the text line. Someone says conscription would be a good thing. Another person says nobody should be drafted, no government should be able to order its citizens to die or to kill. On Instagram, Jesse Lee says, My goodness, I've never been more happy to be disabled. I hope young people reject this notion entirely. While Michael says, Me and the boys would rather get drafted than go to therapy. So lots of opinions there. I want to get into this idea of conscription a little more now. Dr John Blackson is a professor of international security and intelligence studies at ANU. He knows a lot about this stuff and he's with me now. G'day, John. Welcome back to Hack. Great to be with you, today. Thanks for having me on the program. Could we get conscription back in Australia? Is that a realistic thing to happen in the years ahead,
1: do you think? So I don't think it's all that likely in the immediate future, in part because we've had a bit of a troubled history with it in the past. We tried to introduce it a couple of times in the First World War and it generated enormous backlash. We got it in the Second World War when it was clear that, you know, we were facing A national emergency and then in the 1950s we had a scheme that was for service in Australia only but then the the one that was the most controversial was the one in the Vietnam War era where the Nashos as they call them would be conscripted and quite a number of them uh, were sent to Vietnam and that generated enormous um, protests in Australia and there was a kind of sense that as that came to a close that was kind of a an episode we didn't want to repeat because it was really bruising politically. But times have changed. You know, we're living in a different world now. We're facing not just the prospect of great power competition, and we're seeing wars break out in the Middle East, in Europe, on the edge of, you know, the Indian Ocean, in the Red Sea with the Houthis, and of course, the prospect of war in East Asia. You know, we face the prospect of having to try and muscle up again a little bit in terms of how we respond to a suite of crisis because it's not just great power competition we're worried about you know we're facing floods fires all of these things have happened in succession and if they start happening simultaneously then we're in a world of hurt we think we've got a big defense force state we're having ourselves on it's relatively minuscule boutique defense force so we've got a problem because we've got not just the Army, Navy and Air Force that are suffering from recruitment problems, but our state emergency services, the rural and country fire services, the state and federal police forces, They're all stretched. Do you think
0: this is an issue that the government's thinking a lot about, not just this current federal government, but previous governments as well, that idea that as we have more natural disasters, big events in Australia that the ADF is called upon to help out with, that maybe it's taking them away from their core responsibilities?
1: So there is an awareness in the government, but there's a real political timidity about this on both sides of the aisle because they know about the toxic past, right? And this is this is why I think it's really important for us to think innovatively about a, a new way of solving the problem.
0: So you've pitched this idea, John, of an Australian national and community service scheme. How would that work?
1: So the idea would be to encourage young men and women to make a choice. When they going to get to the 18 uh, when they finish high school, if we're around about that age, they could do it potentially a little bit earlier. But around about the 18 year mark, make a choice about where they want to spend the next 12 to 24 months, be it either with the Army, Navy and Air Force or state or federal police or with the state emergency service or with the rural fire service and or the country fire service, depending what state you're in. Or with national parks and wildlife on rehabilitation tasks or on assistance with, you know, paramedical assistance for aged care facilities and things like that. There's a way, I think, to do that. And because people say, John, but, you know, we can't, we're not getting enough volunteers. And that's why we're talking about having to do conscription. I think what we need is to try an incentivized voluntary scheme where we really pitch it to young Australians. This is, in their interests, it's good for the nation. So, we do that with a few incentives. One is you pay them a bit of money, a trainee allowance, which is something, you know, a lot of people, a lot of organizations have trainee wages. You give them credentials for the training that they receive. You give them an opportunity to pursue that option as a career, and potentially you give them concessions off their tertiary education, if they're going to go to uni, you know, your higher education contribution scheme or HEX, reduced proportionately depending on how much time you spend and what you do. So you could potentially come out not having to worry about HEX. Or if you're not a uni type, then perhaps a startup loan for a business or a a lump sum contribution to getting your first down payment for a house. They're the kinds of incentives that I think young Australians could get their heads around and think, you know what? I can see that this is good for the country and it's going to benefit me personally. And I reckon if we were to get young people from all different parts and walks of life from across Australia to spend time together, get to know each other, learn a bit about each other, you might actually help break down some of those conspiratorial ideas of mistrust and otherness. Well,
0: there you go. That's John's idea. Keen to hear what you think of it. Already messages on the text line. Someone says conscription by lotteries giving huge Hunger Games vibes. Monty from Tassie says it really upsets me to hear people say they wouldn't stick up for their own people. And another person says people need to get a grip on reality. If the time does come when we're involved in a war... Who do they think is going to defend us? Now, John, you've had this idea for a voluntary scheme to get people to sign up for national and community service, like you say, offering incentives like paying off hex debt, helping young people buy a house. The big question is, how are we going to pay for something like that? Is it going to be too expensive?
1: So the question is, can we afford not to? What are we comparing the current situation with? We're, we're facing predicament today... You know, large tracts of our society, cities, stretches of the land are burnt out or flooded, you know, facing catastrophe. We need to be able to energize and turn on response mechanisms in society. And at the moment, they're at breaking point. How, how much value do you place on that? We And you know, you know, just by way of comparison, a decade or so ago, we didn't have the NDIS, right? It didn't exist. We've managed to find the money to make that happen. We are a creative nation. We can make this happen if we want to, if we've got the political will. And I guess, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this with you, Dave, because I know a lot of people listen to your program. And I think this is something that we need to say to our politicians, say, well, we want a scheme like this. But a lot of the countries, the Nordic countries in Northern Europe, whom we like to compare ourselves quite often with, they've done it routinely. I think we need to get our heads around thinking that way.
0: What do you think about... The idea that's been floated around of Australia letting foreigners join our ADF uh, with some provisions there that makes it easier for them to gain permanent residency, citizenship, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's one of the incentive mechanisms you could have. So you could have early citizenship agreement, you know, permanent residency early citizenship with some financial incentives as well. That's certainly feasible. And as we you know, think about more engagement in the Pacific, we already have some senior officers from Papua New Guinea and Fiji working with the ADF, with the Australian Defence Force. There's no reason why we can't uh, look to constructively engage with our neighbours in the Pacific to recruit, but in turn, uh, offer them back as part of the deal, you know, so, so that they come, they come and work with us, but they, they're not, we're not abandoning the, the, the Pacific. We're, we're working collaboratively with them. One of the important things I think to remember also, you know, there's a deterrent effect from having a robust armed force. And we actually, we want peace. We don't want war, right? But if you look easy pickings, you can actually invite adventurism. This happened in North Korea in 1950. North Kim Kim Il-sung at the time, you know, he looked down at South Korea and said, easy picking, so I'm just going to invade. And the Americans back in January 1950 said, you know what, we don't care about Korea. Um, Five months later, they did. uh, Because when Kim Il-sung invaded Kim Kim Jong-un's grandpa uh, in June 1950, America felt the need to respond. Why? Because a democracy has to respond to its electorate and the electorate was up in arms. That's what happens when bullies are around the place, and this is what happened in in Ukraine. This is the this is the irony: is that if you want peace, you actually have to have a reasonably robust posture yourself to show the world that you can look after yourself. You just don't want to look like you get your easy pickings because a bully will come along and try and pick on you. I'm still trying
0: to come to terms with you describing the defence force as boutique. I mean, it's not giving the bold, strong image that you'd be um, expecting from from an ADF.
1: It's world-class, it's got top-notch people, top-notch technology, it's really, really good at what it does, it's just a one-punch force. Don't ask it to sustain the kind of combat that Ukraine sustained, because it's just not up for the fight.
0: What do you say, John? just finally, to the young Australian listening to this now thinking, no, I'm not going to be made to join up to anything. I've got free will, my life. I don't agree with this notion. What would be your response to to that Australian listening now?
1: So that's fine. If we can't generate enough incentives for you to serve, that's the way it is. Uh, I would hope that that is a minority view and that we would get enough young people Agreeing that it's worth considering, and that if the, and that if I'm going to get qualifications, I'm going to get remunerated, I'm going to get some skills, all of those things I mentioned, the SES, the fire service, state police, federal police, army, navy, air force, uh, national parks and wildlife, paramedic, uh, aged care assistance. If you can't bring yourself to make a contribution in one of those, I reckon you should have a long hard look at yourself, mate. You know, really, you can't bring yourself to do something for for your neighbour, for the society when we're facing a spectrum of challenges, the likes of which we haven't seen in generations. Come on, let's pony up. Let's do this. We can do this. We're Australians. We can do this.
0: It's definitely very interesting stuff to think about. And we appreciate your insight. Dr. John Blaxland, Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at ANU. Thank you very much for joining
1: us on Hack. Oh, great to be with you, Dave. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Hack on
0: Triple Jack. And this has divided the text line, this interview. Someone says, the incentive is protecting Australia. Another person 100% agree with John. And then someone else says, take a good hard look at yourself. I did, and I decided no. <laughs> That's someone's statement there. Someone else says, the thing which I thought was the most important from compulsory service in Europe is that I got to know my country by living with a randomly selected people for a year. That was from Serge. That is a bit of what John was saying. He thinks the benefits would go beyond just military, protecting the country, helping out community uh, services, that kind of thing. And then someone else says they want us young people to fight for the older people who start this stuff. So lots of opinions there. That is all we've got time for on The Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.